This is the fifth Sunday in Lent. Next Sunday we begin a mini-season in the life of the church, uh, Holy Week. And with the liturgical renewal over the last 50 years in the liturgical churches, uh, Holy Week has been restored to its rightful place uh, as sort of the centerpiece of the way we understand the Christian faith and life. And so what I want to do this morning in my sermon is talk about some of the themes that have been presented to us over the past five weeks. Some things uh, occur and then recur again. And the reading, one of the readings for this Sunday will recur again in the readings that are read at the Great Vigil of Easter, the prophecies, the Old Testament readings uh, at the beginning of the Easter Vigil liturgy. So they're thematically important to how we understand the Easter event. On Ash Wednesday, we talked about uh, keeping Lent, that three of the important themes are repentance, reconciliation, the importance of clean motives, and we should add to that that we're introduced to the, the importance of baptism and its, its being central to our self-understanding as Christian people. So when we think about baptism, we understand Lent is a, per- is a period of time to reconnect to our own baptismal vows. In the early Christian church, the only time you got baptized was on Easter, at the great vigil of Easter, the Easter liturgy. And in many places, uh, there was a three-year period of preparation before you got baptized. It was called the catechumenate. And during that time, you were uh, taught about the faith and life of the Christian church. And Lent became a preparatory season an intensification of that preparation for those who were about to be baptized. So that was its principal focus. But also what began to grow up around it was that it was a season of repentance, of some form of self-examination, some uh, time to reflect on how to reorient ourselves more congruent with the purposes of God. There's nothing wrong with penance or repentance, But it wasn't originally the center. The idea of the importance of baptism uh, was at the center. The presence of the Spirit of God, which Paul will speak about in today's reading from Romans. So part of the reason for this, in my opinion, is that after the Constantinian settlement in about 314 A.D., everybody was in. All the adults got baptized. So now the primary pool of baptizees uh, became infants and young children. And so uh, that was uh, coterminous with the translation of the Bible from Greek into Latin by St. Jerome in the 400s. And so that text was the text that people who could read read in the West. And when they came to uh, John the Baptist in the wilderness, telling everyone that they should repent, Jerome translated it from the Greek penitentium agite, do penance. So we all got the idea that that was the principal focus of the way we should 
uh, keep the season of Lent, this preparatory season, when in fact it's not either or, it's both and. So we go immediately from Ash Wednesday to the first Sunday in Lent, and we go to the temptation of Jesus after his own baptism. He goes into the wilderness where he is tempted, as it says in the reading by Satan. This affords the opportunity to say that uh, it's, not a, it's not really correct to, ref, to think of Satan as the devil. That, does, it, that word doesn't mean the devil. It means the advocate. And so Satan can be understood to mean all of the forces that we're subjected to, both internally and externally, to turn away from God and in on ourselves. And so Father Thomas Keating says that the source of Jesus' temptation, which are the sources of our own temptations, are the three energy centers, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And these things continue to come up in our life all of the time. So part of the process of the season of Lent is to learn something about how we can practice the kind of internal self-regulation, prayer, non-anxiousness before the anxiousness and reactivity of other people, and through God's grace to put those things to the side. And Jesus is able to defeat the advocate through reflecting those qualities. And so, too, if we understand Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template we lay over our own spiritual life and development, we can undertake to practice those things ourselves and to become better at that as we live and uh, understand that it is by God's grace we are able to do those things. So we move from the temptation in the wilderness week one. Week two, we talk about the importance of obedience and faithfulness because we have the story of Abram who will become Abraham, and he is obedient to God and does what God tells him to do, to move his, his tribe and family and everybody out of where he lives to, the, to a new place, a new sense of self, a new direction. This is God's work when it was tried one way and ends in the Tower of Babel, a big fat city that didn't turn out to work and so he chose a nomad. And Abraham had faith in God. When you think about faith, faith has sometimes to me a kind of white knuckle quality. But it means trust. Abraham trusted God. And because of that, Paul will now take this up in Romans on the second Sunday in Lent and say it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And by extension, since Abraham represents part of this grand narrative of which we become a part as we move uh, into the period of Jesus and so forth, that it is important for us to have faith, to have trust in God, and to understand it uh, in perhaps a more active fashion than many people do. In the third week in Lent, we receive what I like, I like these, as I tell you all the time, a murmuring passage. 
the people of Israel are, are in, the de- in the wilderness and they're out of water. They don't know where they're going to get any water and they're very angry with Moses and they're about ready to stone him and in turn Moses complains to God about this situation that the people are unhappy and they're rebellious and God said take some of the leadership in your group and you lead them out and you go to the place I tell you and you strike the rock with the rod you use to part the Red Sea And out of this rock comes water. It's the same kind of water that in the gospel for that Sunday we read about at the well with the Samaritan woman. Jesus promises her an unending stream of water that will slake not only her physical thirst, but her spiritual thirst. And the early church will read these stories and they will immediately make the connection to baptism and its importance. And so she now becomes uh, a believer in, in Jesus. And after that, we come to the week four, and we have a reading about the light overcoming the darkness. John's gospel is filled with imagery of the presence of the illuminative processes of God at work in the lives of people and in the community of faith. And so when we get to Easter, to the great vigil, we're now going to symbolize the presence of the illuminative processes of God by the Paschal candle, the light of Christ. Early Christians understood that to be a symbol of the pillar of fire in the wilderness leading the people of Israel, showing them the way, lighting their path. So they understood it to be an external presence And they also understood it to be an internal presence, the illuminative process inside them so that they could see more clearly their own dark places and they could see more clearly all of the things that they are doing, living lives consistent and congruent with God's purposes for them and teaching them the ways and the means by which they might let that light reflect out to other people and also to make them more receptive to receiving the light reflected back to them from other people. We've talked about the uncreated light before and its presence uh, in human beings. And in that, that Sunday in Lent, we talk about that. This Sunday is really about resurrection, so it's a setup for Easter as we begin Holy Week. There are three stories Uh, that all have something to do with new life, regeneration, transformation. Ezekiel, the reading from Ezekiel, we will read at the Great Vigil of Easter. It's one of the readings. In 1833, John Keeble, the Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford University, preached a sermon to open the courts It's called the Assize Sermons. It was customary then to have a preacher preach at the opening of the session of court when the season opened. And he preached a sermon called National Apostasy. And it was on this text, Can These Bones Live? And he meant the Church of England. In 1813... Twenty years before, nine people had received Holy Communion at St. Paul's Cathedral on Easter. 
And that sermon is considered the kickoff of what we now call the Oxford Movement, the Catholic Revival in the Church of England. John Keeble, Edward Bovray Pusey, and John Henry Newman, who I'm somewhat sorry to say became Cardinal Newman. But they were the three, and they published their tracts, 90 of them, uh, over the next few years. So he preached this sermon about how we can understand regeneration and how we can understand putting flesh on the bones in an institutional sense. And in, in a way, that's what Ezekiel was talking about, the people of Israel. Can these bones live? After the Babylonian exile or getting ready for the Babylonian exile, how are we going to be able to survive and function? And he, as a prophet, says, God's presence is going to knit these bones together, put flesh on these bones, and put his spirit in these bones. And we will have new life. So we have always read this passage as uh, something to do with resurrection, and it plays prominently uh, in the Easter period. Paul is affirming in his reading about the importance of the Spirit. Here's a, here's a three-word or four-word explication of the meaning of Paul. One God, one people, one future. Animated by the Holy Spirit of God. And he talks today about the meaning of the Spirit. Sometimes that's neglected in, in uh, writing about Paul. So the spirit for Paul is everything in the human person that is congruent with God's purposes for them. Everything that provides them with the strength and the ability to fulfill God's promises, to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love to the world. And when Paul uses the word flesh, he is not speaking about a repudiation of the physical material world or the physical body. He's talking about the repudiation of all those things that turn us away from God and in on ourselves. In the 1980s, when I was the rector of Christ Church Sausalito, there was a book published I can't remember the guy's name now. It was called The Age of Narcissism. We don't talk about that too much anymore, but it hasn't really gone away. About five months ago, I saw a woman come out of the steamer's restaurant. She had a T-shirt on, and it said, It's all about me. <laughs> two two. Right? So Paul is speaking about the flesh in that sense. And turning and making yourself open to the spirit. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. And so Paul is giving us the word about how transformation and new life uh, is a, a function of the presence of the spirit of God. We believe that the spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. And so by extension, we're, we're the beneficiaries of that. Uh, 
my former bishop in California for a long time was Bishop William Swing. And he said to me once, I believe in the resurrection because I have experienced the resurrection in my own life and I've seen it present in other people. We're not talking about the, the resuscitation of corpses here only. We're talking about how out of very difficult, trying circumstances, our lives are transformed. And we learn some things about the nature of this risen life. And we can learn how to commend that to other people as we live. And the stories that we're going to read about the resurrection and what happens to Jesus and how we understood that as the early Christians are going to be informative for us as we live our own lives because the processes of resurrection continue. And the promises of God are that all of us are going to participate in the future in the general resurrection and be together. At the sermon discussion group, Father Cockrell said that uh, he was in the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai a few years ago. And when he was there, he went. They have an ossuary where you can go in and all the bones of the monks that have been there and died are in this. They're skeletons. Their skulls are all over here. The tibia are all over here. They're all over here. And they're numbered. They know who they are. They know the number, where, what fits with what. It's provided archaeologists with an enormous amount of help in many things. And, of course, it's also a testimony to that, pris- uh, that pr- uh, primitive belief that at the general re- resurrection, these dry bones will live. In the Gospel we read today about Lazarus, it's, it's one of the most important stories, I think, in the New Testament for many. And, of course, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And we read about some of the people in, in the, in the uh, reading that we're, we have met other places, Mary and Martha, and some of the other people, Thomas. By the way, it says Thomas the twin. Thomas means twin. Didymus in Greek means twin. So he is there and he's all enthusiastic and running around about all kinds of things. This is about experiencing in a dramatic way God's resurrecting power. And now by extension we have sort of a a little foretaste of what's going to happen on Easter. That's why this reading uh, is in uh, the Gospels in this cycle, in cycle A of Lazarus and experiencing uh, new life and that Jesus is the bringer of new life. And as people of faith, trust, that's how we understand that. So this week, give thanks for the possibility of new life and transformation that is always present to us and that you can become an instrument of transformation and new life for others as you live into God's promises for you. Amen.